This is The Film File. This is The Film Show for Film Geeks. This is episode 94. Round of applause, please. And here we are. And if it wasn't for that film intro, the whole show would be a calamity, more so than sometimes it normally is, because we just need that music to start the show. I was thinking, should we change it after episode 100? Because we are, what, six episodes away? And yeah, I'd, I'd miss it. Yeah, I'd miss it, it, Andy. It's, it, it's our theme now. It just feels so iconic to it. It's it, It's got that kick. It kicks us to life every time that we use it. And normally, as those people who check out the YouTube channel every now and then will know, I hum it or make interpretations of it using various bits and bops from my mouth. But um, I, I just decided to play it through my mobile phone today for a laugh. <laughs> and why not? I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Megan. And you're joining us for the film show for Film Geeks by your friendly neighbourhood, Film Geeks. Andy, how have you been? Uh, I've, uh, well, aside from, like, exhausted from work, I've, I've had a great weekend. Oh, that's good. And... My great weekend has come from Edgar Wright liking multiple tweets of mine this weekend. Oh, what did you do to um, entice Mr. Wright into your web of um, <laughs> web of intrigue? Uh, well, it, it's the small things in life. And when you get like a Apparently, celebrity... That's, that's what like, my partner says every time. <laughs> when you get a, a celebrity <laughs> like something, when you talk about some of their projects and they like what you what it is, it gives you a little bit of like a glow that they're interacting with their fans in such a way. Uh, with this, it's one of the tweets was about his recent film, Last Night in Soho, which he liked my tweet for. And then another one was in a comment that I made about how he liked one of my posts years ago when Baby Driver came out. Um, it's like your Because I, I commented back then that the mashing of Blair and Hocus Pocus in one scene is just utter perfection. Two great tracks, a marvellous film. Got a like from him then. And a comment, just commenting on that, I got a like. Um, one of my likes was for me mentioning that the character in Last Night in Soho is named Eloise after the song, maybe. Just like my daughter is named Eloise after the song by Barry Ryan. Or The Damned, if you remember that version. I, well, The Damned one was the one that I originally heard when I was young. Mm -hmm. But the Barry Ryan one is the one that I've always okay. gravitated towards. And... The final one was just me responding to someone else who'd got a like off him with another little comment. And then he'd liked what I said. It's like, oh, man, this is great. <laughs> Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright's all over my Twitter feed at the moment. <laughs> so if we hashtag him into this, he might start following the show. He's. I'm going to link him into this so that he can actually hear us talk about his film later on in the show. I have a very tenuous connection to him uh, through a producer who was going to produce my first movie, uh, my second movie, actually. And they had a connection to Edgar because they were always talking about him. Edgar, like, like we're really friends. So. <laughs> Me and Edgar, we go back way. <laughs> and they were always saying this guy is going to be up and coming. And this is around the, around the time of Spaced. So, uh, um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, interesting. I always forget I had a film. I had a film once, Andy. Uh, and I've got <laughs> another film coming out early next year, which uh, I'm keeping you on tenterhooks for. And we'll talk about uh, as soon as I've got a release date. And I'll let Andy review it. <laughs> so uh it's definitely picked up for distribution and i will Excellent. tell you about it when it's close to release Ooh, so you will hear it here first we you will hear it exclusive. here first because i mean uh, mainly because uh you host the show but... yeah, yeah it's easy <laughs> it's a mouthpiece for my for my life so i'm knackered 
Um, let's get that out of the way. Uh, You've had a long weekend at a gig, haven't it's you? It's been, yeah, we played a festival gig uh, for Halloween, uh, the Samhain Sonic Shocker Show. Try saying that after a, a couple of dandelion and burdocks. And it went really well. It was the most bizarre gig I've ever played, but a very, very appreciative, if not rather uh, drunk audience, but incredibly appreciative. And when you're doing tribute stuff, uh, and it's always difficult, and it's going to be very hard when I go back to doing sort of original stuff, is that, that people sing along and know yeah. all the lyrics, sometimes better than the singer, <laughs> i.e. <laughs> me, because there was two songs where, you know, if you get distracted and, you, and, you know, even big names sometimes forget the odd lyric and you get the, get the lyric run around. And I could see because other people were singing along, I was so conscious that I couldn't screw up any any lyrics but it was a, a fantastic show we were the headlining act um it, it just it was just great but it was it was very tiring because we we didn't go on until sort of 10 30 at night so we were done by 12 30 and just absolutely exhausted and uh, as of this recording uh, all i wanted to do was get home and have a cup of tea because i've not <laughs> been drinking rock and anything. roll i know it, <laughs> the reason is is because uh building up to a gig and I, i've had a bit of a cold over last week it's Without going into detail, if you drink sort of dairy, it's not good for your for your singing voice. So I've I've not been on a dairy kick for nearly a week now, and boy, I can get through with coffee and things like coconut milk, which is my new favourite thing. Not a neat thing, but a a cool thing for for drinking coffee with. But I can't drink a a, a non milk substitute in tea, and I love a cup of tea every day. Yeah, that I, should I've, be my neat thing. I've tried all your different types of milks, your your nut based ones, your soya based ones, etc. I just can't take to them. I'm 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 a dirty man through and through. It's very difficult to love. I mean, I, <laughs> I've not tried oat milk yet, but I think someone's comments once of saying that it made their tea taste like porridge put me it, completely off. <laughs> it doesn't. It, yeah, it's actually true. It tastes, it tastes like cereal in in that. I, as I've, I've said many times, we're a plant based household because my uh, my other half she's she's vegan, and it's yeah. always easier to um, you know when it comes to buying food, you 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 buy. Um, you buy out of necessity sometimes. So we get home, we, we are pretty much plant-based. And I'm veering on the verge of being a veggie. Though yeah. saying that, pre-gig, when you've, you know, you've got to eat enough protein and just to have your energy levels up, especially when you come in on at half past 10 at night, um, <laughs> basically half a roast chicken. <laughs> I was just good at that. And I, I think I'm, I'm, I gorged myself on chicken. It's the first time I've had meat for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I just was like, I was, I was like crack <laughs> give me more <laughs> but uh yeah the the milk situation i can do it in coffee but uh, and i love my cereals i can't have it on cereal and i can't have it on tea i've tried and it's just putrid yeah. but in coffee it seems to work and especially coconut milk in in coffee it just gives you that little sweet edge and i you know funny enough since covid i've developed a sweet tooth which i didn't have before uh my 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 uh taste buds changed weirdly after covid once i got my taste back and things that i don't like anymore are quite weird i, I can't drink beer i've never been a huge beer drinker but as soon as i taste beer it tastes off and even red wine which i'm always a big fan uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not liking the taste but i've developed this sweet tooth in a way i now put sugar in coffee because i've not done that since i was like 12 years old 14 years old uh, and it's been really weird some of the some of the effects of sort of long long-term covid anyway you don't want to hear all that what you want to hear is us talking about 
films because that's why you've joined us. But if the other stuff is why you've joined us, hang around for the film stuff rather than just an insight <laughs> into our personal lives and eating habits. In this week's show, we're going to be bringing you a deep dive into Christopher Nolan's Inception. Andy will be reviewing Last Night in Soho from Edgar Wright, Army of Thieves, the spin-off prequel to Army of the Dead, The Night House, which landed on Disney Plus this week, and Nick Cage's Willy's Wonderland. I've, uh, I nearly had a, a problem with my Willy's Wonderland once, but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, managed to get the DVD sorted. <laughs> yeah. Can we say that on radio? <laughs> I don't know. Can say it's it a good podcast. job that I can edit that. We can say it in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be giving you our usual neat things. And of course, we can't start any show without giving you the latest from the World Wide Web and beyond the news. So before we get into the news, Andy, let's have a look at this week's box office. Now, I'm assuming that with June being released the previous week, there's not much in the way of, uh, of a contender for this week's box office. Well, um, let's, you let's, talk about now, U- <laughs> let's talk about US figures, but I've also got some UK figures to throw in. In the US, June kept the top spot this week, taking an additional 15.5 million uh, over the weekend. Total worldwide, after just this few weeks of release, is now up to 293.6 million, which good. is very, very strong. However, if you look at the UK, Dune took 4.5 million this weekend, slipping to second place. Which, let me think, would that be Halloween Kills? No. In the US, Halloween Kills hit into second place, stayed comfortably in second place with 8.5 million. It takes the total from the US to 85 million, and worldwide total is 116.6 million. In the UK, Halloween Kills has dropped to seventh place, so it's definitely not Halloween Kills. No, it's Bond. Bond in the UK has shot back up onto the top spot. That's interesting. I, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised. And uh, because, you know, we had such a, a big, strong opening. And then you ha- we know we had a bit of a drop off when June hit, um, hit the screen. So yep. well, that is interesting. Any, any reasons why you think that is? Or in, was it just the popularity of Bond? I think it's, it, particularly in the UK, the popularity of Bond, they hold over well week on week and there's not huge drops every week yep. audience wise. And we've seen this in the past with Skyfall, Spectre, that they've kept running and running for 10, 12 weeks and still selling out screens. In addition, you've got the fight at the moment for screen space. Yeah, because there's so much content that's dropped at the same time that I think Dune possibly could have done better this weekend, but it didn't have the screens. Whilst Bond is holding over well with the screens that it's got, and so it's now down to like two screens in most cinemas. If you say a ten screen cinema, it two screens are now Bond, and it's had that for two weeks, but they've been selling out each week, so it's got a comfortable progression going. Whereas Dune probably could have done with like four screens in a right. ten screen cinema this week, but. Because of so much content that dropped, it's shrunk down to like two, maybe three in some sites. So it's put a pressure on films. Whether Dune will continue to sustain its business in the small amount of screens and do what Bond's done now and take the top spot back next week or the week after remains to be seen. But both films are doing well. I mean, Bond took 4.7 million this weekend in the UK, which is only 0.2 million above what Dune took. So it is that close between them. Right. In the US, No Time to Die has taken an additional 7.8 million. 
It's currently at 606 million worldwide and it's opened in China. Do we have any figures for China yet? It's not done as well as that they were expecting in China. But there's a lot of China getting shunted back into lockdowns again. And I believe that I've read about 15 to 18% of theatres are closed again in some of the main locations. However, it did take 28.3 million in the Chinese market over the three days, which isn't anything to be sneered at. So it is a, a strong start, just not what they would have expected with the 40 to 50 million that they were hoping for if we were in different conditions. It's worth noting, and we said this last week, that the 606 million that Bond has taken, if there hadn't been all the delays that caused additional costs through marketing and um, interest payments on the like investments of it, etc., it would have been going into profit now. This would have been a profitable film. Yeah. It's still got, it's still got about 150 million to take before it's considered to be profitable in this post-COVID environment, but it is only because of the delays. So anyone who wants to sneer it and say, well, it's not gone into profit, I don't think the studio's that worried because they are making the money that it was was going to make in the first place. And once it comes onto home retail and home streaming, they will easily generate the rest of the money that they need anyway. Which was what I was just about to say, because once you get to the uh, home streaming uh, and and that availability for another uh, couple of weeks before it eventually goes to to free streaming, it's going to start making money again. It's going to have that that rise, and those people who were a little bit uh, a little bit wary of going back to the yeah. cinema are going to catch it with the film there. So it's as a film, it certainly has legs. Venom Two in the US has dropped down to fifth place, taking five point eight million. It looks like it's coming to the end of its run now. It's petering out significantly. But it's made its money back, you know. It's it's made its money back. It's not as profitable as what the first film was, which we mentioned last week that the first one just made some great numbers. But again, this new world that we live in, it's it's done well to get the money that it does. New releases this week that have done well. In the US, My Hero Academia has shot into fourth place with 6.4 million. That's one of those anime thingy-majobbies, isn't it? It is indeed, and it's got a huge <laughs> following. Know. I'm just... I, I know. It's not my world, and you know that. <laughs> I've never latched onto it. I do like my anime, but I've never latched onto My Hero Academia. But it's one of them that if they say to a cinema, like, do you want to show it? It's like, yeah, 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 of course we do. Of course we do. Just one or two shows a day, we're fine with. But yeah, we need to show it. And uh, disappointingly in the US, Last Night in Soho opened to a lacklustre 4.16 million, Ooh, which puts it into that, sixth place. That is a surprise. And I know we're going to be talking about it later on in the show, but it's not generating good word of mouth. Interesting enough, what is generating good word of mouth is Dune at the moment. I'm I'm seeing seeing and definitely picking that up. I think Dune's finding an audience that are uh, it's the Timothy Marmalade factor. Uh, the Timothy Chalamet factor, you mean? <laughs> yes, you, you know what I mean. Uh, I, I think unless unless he's pull. now playing Paddington in the next film, I don't know. You never know. <laughs> I, I think he's a, a big pull for people coming in who wouldn't have come into it, a lot of younger people. Yeah. And I think the, the trick with Dune, and we talked about this, is you know it's quite interesting that it's just opened while the new season of Succession's opened. And I think there's a yeah. lot of similarities between it. I think that's the... <laughs> That's the joy of Dune. It's it's not gone out for science fiction. It's gone out for talking about... It's got about, a wider appeal. It's, it's discovered the trick of the wider appeal. And, uh, and I think that's why it's doing well. But yeah, everyone expected last night in Soho and Antlers as well, which also came in at around 4.16 million in the US. They thought that with it being Halloween, it's a horror season, that these two horror films would have drawn audiences in. But I think it's a combination of bad marketing and again, full auditoriums and packed box offices. Because they are competing against, like you say, the strong word of mouth for June, strong word of mouth for No Time to Die, and even Halloween Kills. 
Yeah, there's too much competition at the moment in the box office. I think that they should have spaced some of these films out a bit more. The back end of November is looking quite quiet. I think they should have took advantage of that. Yeah. The crammed marketplace is obviously going to cause problems for the lesser marketed films. And it's a shame to see an Edgar Wright film underperform in such a way because he's generally, last time that something underperformed of his in such a manner was Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, interesting enough, that's uh, one of those, that's one of those uh, um, movies that subsequently found an audience. And uh, if it didn't find it at the yes. cinema, it did there. I just think with Edgar Wright's new movie, I think it's it's one of those which has been sold one way and audiences are finding it a different way. Now, I've not seen it, but I'm just going on, on what I hear through the grapevine, yeah. but you're going to give your review. Later in the show. You are indeed. So we just missed it in recording last week's show, but... They gave the green light after our, our review, especially down to our review yes. of Dune, almost to the moment that we uh, we we wrapped on the show. Yeah, while I was there uh, doing the last editing on the Tuesday and into the Wednesday, I was toying with re-editing the show and I was getting back on to just record a bit. But then I thought, well, no, it's it, it'll just be patchy and it'll take away from like the flow that we had. So we thought we'd save it until this week. Yes, June part two is all set and it has a release date of October the 20th, 2023. You've heard right. that right. It's only two years away. And, and, and Villeneuve also now wants to consider a third Dune movie, doesn't he? I, I mean, you've read the book, so you know where that would go. Yeah. The first film has wowed enough audiences at the box office. <laughs> Interestingly, I have heard some comments from people leaving the screen saying, oh, it's just like Star Wars. It's like, is it? It's got a desert, and that's about all that's all that's familiar with it. <laughs> and it's set in space. <laughs> it's a completely different thing. I mean, there's no robot in the Dune universe, and you know, Mentats are the humans who've ingested enough drugs to make their mind work like a human machine. Because there was a big robot rebellion way back in the past. Loads of backstory. Woof! I love that. I love the whole universe. But yes, Villeneuve said that he wants to make it a trilogy. He wants to adapt Dune Messiah. Why is he want to, only wanted to make three? when there were six books by Frank Herbert. Well, that's because up to the end of June, Messiah covers all of Paul Atreides' journey. From right. that point onwards, is his descendants that pick up the story. With Children of June, it's his direct children, like leading the planet of June and working through. And then it works through into like centuries ahead, et cetera, et cetera. Now, some people online who clearly haven't read the books have said that he should make the whole series of films. I right. mean, I can kind of get it with Up to Ch Children of June because there's a lot of political intrigue and it's got the pretty much the same style. But audiences are not going to embrace God Emperor because in God Emperor, Paul's son, Leto, becomes a human hybrid worm and a, a, a ruler of all domains as a result. And audiences won't appreciate that. Right. It's not going to be something easy to do. The books get very pulpy. And anyone who's read the books, if someone says, should I start reading the books? We always say, yes, read the first one. And we never, we tell you to avoid the rest unless you completely embrace every aspect of the first one. They get very pulpy. I think Villeneuve's style will work great for everything up to the end of June, Messiah. If they do decide to continue the franchise on after that, they're going to need a different director, I think. You know, with HBO, it it could always go to HBO Max, couldn't it? Um, yeah, they could. You know, they could adapt the latter ones into a series. Yeah, and then if people are wanting to stick around, but you know why I think it's it's done so well, and I've heard a couple of people comment on this: people who've not read the book, people yeah. who are fresh to to that, thinking it might have been a bit like Star Wars, is yeah. that they compared it more to 
Succession, you know, the uh, uh, Sky Atlantic HBO series, which is about a yep. power warring family. That was the thing they took away from it was this this sort of that's what they bought into this idea that it was it was about a power struggle in families. And yeah, uh, and, and that was their in as opposed to, you know, the visions, the sandworms, etc, etc, etc. That that was their in. And I kind of get that. Uh, and, and I think that's what Villeneuve did really well with it on. And I've thought about the movie a lot, much more so than I, I, I thought I would. But good news, we are definitely getting the sequel. Not surprised. I think I'd be more surprised if they, they said no. But yeah. looking forward now to part two. Part two will be a cinema exclusive. It won't be a joint release with HBO Max. And I'm excited to see the new characters and who they cast in the new characters. Because we've still not seen Fade Rother, who was played by Sting in the original. Yeah, in uh, in Winged Underpants. Yep, in Winged Underpants. Completely iconic. And neither have we seen the power behind everything, Emperor Shaddam IV. So there's two key roles that are still yet to be cast. There's a load of other roles that are yet to be cast, but they're the two key ones that I'm keeping an eye out for because I want them to get it as right as they seem to have got the rest of the cast. Right. On the streaming side of it, apparently June was watched by 1.9 million households in the opening weekend on HBO Max. So that's better than Snyder's 1.8 million for his Justice League, but way below the 2.8 million that Suicide Squad and 3.8 million that Mortal Kombat did. So People have gone back to the cinema. Is that what you can take away from that? I think so, because we saw that people didn't return to the cinema for Suicide Squad or Mortal Kombat, but they've clearly gone back for June and it's balanced out that way. So anyone who says that the streaming service doesn't take away from the cinema, these figures themselves kind of reflect that maybe it does. What else have you got? So Aiko Uwais has been cast as the main villain for the upcoming Expendables 4. The star of the raid films will play a former military officer who's turned arms dealer with a private army of all of his own. Plot details and specifics are under wraps, but no doubt there'll be lots of booms, bangs and explosions and guns. Uh, But as previously reported, this is Stallone's final appearance in the series as he hands it over to Statham. Stuntman turned Elmer Scott Wow is directing. Seems fair. There's not much else to comment about it, really. It's it's, it's going to look like all the other films, and uh, you know the, the the saving the saving grace and the the unique property to it was the aged stars, really, given that opportunity yeah. to 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 be 80s style heroes again. So I, I I don't know how much longevity it's got. We'll see. Uh, at the end of the day, it's simple action franchise, and not really very heavy on the budget either, so it can get away with you know just being a bit frivolous with what it does. Uh, Brendan Fraser is to play the DC villain Firefly in the upcoming Batgirl movie for Warner Brothers and HBO Max. Leslie Grace is starring as Barbara Gordon, the daughter of Commissioner Gordon, who's played by the ever-excellent J.K. Simmons, who dons cape and cowl as Batgirl. Adil El Arby and Bill Al-Falar who gave us Bad Boys for Life. Oh, Matt, I've just gone off this whole film. <laughs> uh, we'll direct from a screenplay by Birds of Prey scribe Christina Hodson. I'm, I'm just going to pick something up on that. You said that it's going to be Barbara Gordon, J.K. Simmons's daughter. It's not going to be Jeffrey Wright's then? Uh, not from the reports that I've read, okay. because the Jeffrey Wright is a separate universe. So oh, okay. it's, it's very interesting. That, uh, it, this is the confusion that we've got with the DC well, DC going forwards is you don't know which part of which universe everything's going to be part of. I mean, it doesn't have to be a universe, let's be honest. So far, without it being a universe, we've got some of the best DC films. Yep. Brendan Fraser, for those who know, is no stranger to DC, as he's currently voicing Robot Man in Doom Patrol for HBO. Great series. I, I still need to catch up with it, but I've loved what I've watched so it far. It is really good. Zack Snyder's next entry into his Dead series has a title. Oh, and come on, that Timmy. title is... 
Planet of the Dead. Okay. It suggests that we're going to face more varied locations for this third film in this shared world after Army and the prequel Thieves that I'm going to be talking about later. There are hints that Dieter's going to be returning. As Snyder has said this week, the real adventure would be to see what happened with him, Dieter, when that safe door closed. Did he get killed by Zeus or not? What happened? We don't see him die on camera and there's still some time left. I won't tell you what happens in Army of the Dead 2, a.k.a. Plans of the Dead, but let's just say there's a chance that Dieter survives. And there's <laughs> I think a chance... that's more or less a giveaway, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, ba- he's basically saying, like, he wants to put him back in there. There's a chance that brush with death would have caused him to want to find a jailed Gwendolyn. You'll get to find out more about Gwendolyn when you watch uh, the prequel, which that's is on Netflix, the worst which I'll talk about later. non-spoiler. <laughs> um, yeah, this character might be back. This would be the character's arc if they survived. <laughs> I've thought through everything about them. (laughs) Um, It's unsure when he's going to get round to making Planners of the Dead because he's still working on his planned Rebel Moon, which is basically a Star Wars film without Star Wars on it. Well, that's the film that he pitched, wasn't it? He pitched to Star Wars. And the the powers that be in the Star Wars universe turned it down a slightly more adult take, or whatever that means from Zack Snyder, a more adult take on, on Star Wars, which he's now going to be doing rebel moon with netflix we'll get to see rebel moon when he finally puts that one together hopefully by the end of next year and then maybe he'll go into planet of the dead straight after that hey have you heard about this casting rumor apparently from the horse's mouth itself is that bill murray is joining the cast of ant-man 3 absolutely amazing that that is literally my next bullet point note well, to me <laughs> he is to he has let slip and you'll you'll confirm this He's in Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania. Yes, uh, in his words, I recently made a Marvel movie. I probably can't tell you about it, but it doesn't matter. In any case, some people were quite surprised why I decided on on such a project of all things. But for me, it was very clear. I got to know the director and I really liked him a lot. He was funny, humble and everything you want from a director. And with the cheerleading story, Bring It On, Girls United, he made a film years ago that I think is damn good. So I accepted, even though I'm not otherwise interested in these huge comic book adaptations as an actor. So whilst he hasn't specifically said he's in Peyton Reed's Ant-Man Quantumania. He has basically said he's in Peyton Reed's Ant-Man Quantumania. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which we'll also see him re-team with um, Paul Rudd, who's starring alongside him in the upcoming Ghostbusters sequel. Yeah, yeah. Um, He does have no plans to reprise any role within the MCU, though. In his words again, let's put it this way. The director's a good guy, and now I've at least tried what it's like to make a Marvel movie, but I don't think I need this experience a second time. So he's done it just because he likes Peyton Reed. And to be honest with you, I can kind of see that. Yeah. Did you ever ever see any of the, the production stuff that Peyton Reed was going to do for Fantastic Four? No. It was stunning. I've I've got the uh, I've got the script. Shh, I'll tell everybody Ooh. to that movie, and it, it it was a really good take on on the Fantastic Four. It kind of set in an alternative kind of nineteen sixties to a degree, and it worked. It was it was so much better than the film that we got. But a box with the number four drawn on it would have been better than the film that we got. <laughs> I'm feeling mean today, aren't I? But it was a it was a really good good script, and almost treated like they were almost treated like the Beatles, the Fantastic Four. It was it was a really clever take. It, was, it had a nice amount of humor, uh, which I think you need for the Fantastic Four. You do need humor. Yeah. Um, because it is a it is a family so but yeah it was it was um that's what eventually got him the job with marvel because i think they liked his his spin on it which unfortunately never happened we'll eventually get to see what marvel's own take on the fantastic four will be yeah sometime down the line which very excited for um the wolfman movie hit a wall when lee wannell left the project earlier this year due to scheduling issues but it scored director Derek Sionfrance 
instead. And this means that the director is going to be teamed with his Blue Valentine and Place Beyond the Pines star, Ryan Gosling. I'm still baffled that Ryan Gosling is going to be in a Wolfman film. This still yeah. amazes me. Every time that every time that I get reminded of it, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, <laughs> Ryan Gosling's the Wolfman. <laughs> is it any stranger than Jack Nicholson being the Wolfman? I, I, I don't know. He was going through a phase at the time, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. I, I found this to be good news this week, uh, especially after after watching Bond, that Anna DRMS is in talks to start in a John Wick spin-off called The Ballerina. Yes. Uh, so what? there's no details at all on whether a character from Bond will return in her own spin-off, but who cares? Because we're going to get to see her, like you say, in a John Wick spin-off in which she's going to play a young female assassin who's seeking revenge against those who killed her family. Oh, that old chestnut. The director of this is Len Wiseman, who gave us Underworld, and I've got a lot of love oh, for okay. the style that he brought to Underworld. Yeah, he did. They were, they were, they were more style over substance, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest for me. And the script is coming from Shay Hatton, who penned the script for John Wick 3. Okay, so it's keeping it in the family. Before she goes into that film, Diarmus will be next seen in a Marilyn Monroe biopic called Blonde for Netflix. And she's also partnering with the Russo brothers in an action thriller called The Grey Man. Oh, yeah, which we've been talking about on the show for some time. Um, she was she was uh, scene stealing, I think, in uh, in the Bond movie. I mean, she was seen stealing in everything that she's done. But in the Bond movie, she she was the bit in which Phoebe Waller-Bridger, I thought, was was more responsible yeah. for in the script than anything else. And, and that's the bit that kind of uh, shone for me. Not yeah, that the rest you, of the film didn't. I've given it a good review, but I, I felt that was Phoebe Waller-Bridge's scene in there. Jeff Nichols has departed the Quiet Place spin-off. Yeah, that's disappointing. It's reportedly amicable terms with Paramount. Instead, he's diverting his attention to make a sci-fi project that he's been developing in the background for the studio themselves. The studio is now seeking a new Helmer to pick up the story, which is based on an idea that Krasinski had on how to expand the world focus out and away from the main story and the main family. It is disappointing. You know, Nichols could, could have brought a great little vision to it. But if it wasn't going to work for him, I'd rather him have done this where he can go off and do something that he's more interested in rather than him feeling pressured into delivering something he's got. He's not quite got the connection with. There's been a few trailer drops this week. The Witcher season two trailer landed. There was the first teaser for The Servant season three. I've still got to finish season two of The Servant. It, it didn't grab me like season one, which was, was compelling. I, I must be honest. I, it has picked up about halfway through, but but not compelling enough for me to... to. It's one of those, oh, you know what? I ought to go back to it rather than I want to go back to it. House of Gucci, the new Ridley Scott film about the Gucci's, landed this week, as did Lightyear exclusive, The Real Buzz in Lightyear. Did you see that one? <laughs> I did, yes. Um, that That's my trailer of the week because this is a project that when it was initially announced, it was like, eh... Mm, do we really need like a kind of spin-off of Toy Story that shows the inspiration for I, the I character? I must admit, I felt like, exactly yeah. the same. But as soon as I saw the trailer, I was like, I need this film in my life right now. Blast that rocket into my garden. I have, <laughs> That sounds rude. That sounds rude. But, you know, I'm sticking with it. I want that film. It looks great. It looks different. I was expecting it to be like a first man kind of um, animation. But no, they've gone for like the, it's kind of got the aspect of like Flash Gordon-esque kind of approach in there as well excited uh, yeah I, I thought it looked great I, I was really really excited about it I, uh, I I'm, I'm with you on that didn't think it was necessary like the animation style we know it's Chris Evans um, providing the voice so it's gonna gonna be an interesting take on it I'm uh, I'm, I'm now 
quite giddy with anticipation. Whether it'll be necessary is is, is proofs in the pudding. There's been a, a Scream trailer for the new Scream film, which is simply yep. called Scream, as opposed to being called Scream 5 or whatever number we're now up to. Yep. And did you see the trailer for Black Phone, the new film by Scott Derrickson? With, I didn't uh, know. Ethan Hawke in a in a rather scary mask, which is uh, an adaptation of a Joe Hill novel. Looks very creepy and very interested in that one. It's one of those when you think, oh, it should be out now because it's just in time for Halloween. I'll load that one up and get that checked out. You should. The long gestating adaptation of Wicked has hit yet another stumbling block. Has it now? Production has now been pushed back again from March to June next year and has also switched from a shooting schedule planned for Atlanta to the UK at the newly built Sky Studios. Uh-oh, I sense the three words, a Sky original. <laughs> yeah. uh, Universal has been trying to develop this film since 2004. In recent years, momentum began to build for adapting the stage musical to the screen. In the Heights, Helmer John M. Chu is now signed on to direct. And the stage show, for those who don't know and have been living under a rock for two decades, is an adaptation of the book by Gregory Maguire, which tells the life story of the Wicked Witch of the West from the L. Frank Bohm, Wizard of Oz. However, the book takes a very mature approach but for the stage version, they basically made it feel linked and thematically the same as the classic Wizard of Oz movie. They're expecting this movie to have that same kind of aesthetic as the Wizard of Oz movie and sit alongside there. But uh, Sky Studios, Sky I know. Studios. I know, I know. It's the it's the uh, um, it's those three little words that send you into a, into a real tizzy. It's one of you know what? Yeah. I'm not bothered about a movie. It's one of the stage shows that I would like to see. I'm not a massive musical fan. But I would would quite fancy that. Um, and, and talking of musicals, there's been a, a, another tease for West Side Story, which I just can't wait for. I'm really looking forward to West Side Story. And West Side Story looks delicious. It does. Uh, but I've seen Wicked live on stage oh, twice. I do fancy it. I've I've loved it both times. Different casts on both the productions that I've seen, but both of them were just they just capture my attention throughout. The songs are great. The performances are great. There's humour in there. They are great stage shows. Um, let's round off the news with a run through of a chunk of casting because there's been a chunk of casting news this week. Okay, go for it. Pierce Brosnan is going to play a hitman who's working for an aging mob boss who goes on a revenge streak when a rival gang wipe out his mob in Phil Noyce directed Fast Charlie. How do you say Phil Noyce? Phil Noyce. Not seen him for some time. He made some pretty good films in the 80s and then disappeared. Uh, um, either an Australian or a New Zealand director. Uh, did mm. Dead Calm. Yeah, that's the, that's the fella. Yep. Yeah, he's making a return with yeah, Pierce Brosnan. That's good. I always liked his work. Rock the Dwayne Johnson is going to reunite with Jumanji director Jake Kasdan for Red One, which is a Christmas-themed feature described as a globe-trotting four-quadrant action-adventure comedy imagining a whole new universe to explore within the holiday genre. Rumour has it The Rock may be Santa himself. Not in the film, I mean in real life. Oh, okay. Because he's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, Daisy Ridley is signed on to appear in Mindfall, a film set in the near future London where the most sought-after drug on the market is memories, physically removed from a person's brains and implanted into another's using legal tech. Ridley will play a top trafficker in the field with her own addiction to memories, unable to separate her own life from the artificially implanted ones. Sounds Sounds very William Gibson. Yeah, yeah, it does actually. I was. It made me think of Johnny Monomic. Yeah, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is set to star in the lead role for Guy Ritchie's The Interpreter, which sees him play Sergeant John Kinley on his last tour of duty, teamed with a local interpreter called Ahmed, surveying the region. They're ambushed. They manage to escape. Ahmed saving Kinley's life. But the interpreter isn't granted passage to America as promised 
And so Kinley goes back inside to extract Ahmed before local militia get to him. Sounds intriguing. He's, he's a busy boy, isn't he, that Jake Gyllenhaal at the moment? He's everywhere. And I'm quite happy for him to be everywhere as long as he keeps delivering. As long as he never gets lazy. Uh, John Krasinski and Ryan Reynolds are working on a comedy idea about a child's journey to rediscover their imagination. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge has now been added to the cast alongside the pair. We don't know anything more about that one, but that's three names that I'm always interested in. And finally, Oscar Isaac, Sam Rockwell and Christopher Walken have been cast in Martin McDonagh's next film. The plot and the name and any details are completely under wraps, but Rockwell and Walken have already worked with McDonagh in the past. Oscar Isaac, new to the director's vision, but you talk about a guy who gave us films like In Bruges. I'm on board. I'm in. I'm in. And that wraps up the news. Enjoying the show? Is this your first visit? Well, hello and welcome to The Film File. Did you know there were 93 other episodes for you to enjoy? All you have to do is head over to your favourite podcast platform, find The Film File, hit that subscribe button for all the extras and bonus episodes, and remember to like us. Come on, join the family. One of us, one of us, one of us, one of us. And once you're one of us, you can also check us out on Instagram and Facebook by simply going to... Head over to Twitter, follow us at Filmfile UK. Over on Instagram and Facebook, just look for Filmfile UK. And you can also send us emails. Yes, you can use the magic mystery of typing out a letter and send it through to us. Uh, you can you can tell us anything that you love about films. We're coming up to our 100th episode. Tell us your top 10 films that you want to recommend to us. Maybe we'll cover them on the show. Maybe just get... I still want someone to send me an Agony Uncle thing. <laughs> <laughs> your film Agony Uncle. I, I don't know if you've heard uh, the Mark Commode show or, or you ever listen. They do a thing called WTF where they... And it's something that happens to me all the time when people come up to you and go, have you ever seen that film with that man in it? And you've got to basically work out. And I was so tempted that we should yep. do something like that. And then Mark Mode comes along and does exactly that. <sighs> I had an, an ex-girlfriend <laughs> who used to always go, do you remember that film that we saw? It had that man in it with the face. And I'd, I'd basically work back to which yep. film that she meant. Did you mean um, dot, dot, dot? No. Okay. So what you actually meant was... Uh, Friday the 13th part 3 oh yeah that was the one. Oh, it's always a shame they beat us to it I love doing things like that so one of my mates at work said um, I, I remember when I was a kid I saw a film where there was uh, there was a hole in a wall and a goblin thing lived in it and there was a girl who was asleep I was like oh that's Cat's Eye Stephen King short stories what? yeah yeah that's that exactly the thing film called Cat Story. Cat's Eye so he looked up the trailer and was like that's exactly it how did you get that so quick and I was just like because I know films because we know films why not Commode might have beat us to the punch, but if you've got any films that you can't quite remember, put whatever details you think you can remember into an email to us and we'll try to decipher it and see if we can find that film for you and find out what's, what service you can find it on. Absolutely. And we'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what, we'll also do TV series. Oh, yeah, we'll do anything <laughs> yeah. for money. <laughs> anything for likes. We will dance for likes. So that email address is podcast at filmfile.uk. So as you know, if you're a regular listener to the show, we do a deep dive. That is, we take a film, classic or otherwise, where we explore to the minute detail. And this week's deep dive is from Christopher Nolan. Is it a dream? Who knows? But it is Inception. I can access your mind through your dreams. It's called Inception. The seed that we plant in this man's mind make change everything we should walk away from this 
This was not a part of the plan. You're not prepared for this. It came out in 2010, Inception. The film starred Leonardo DiCaprio as a professional thief who steals information by infiltrating the subconscious or the dreams of his targets. He's offered a chance to have his criminal history erased as payment for the implementation of another person's idea into a target's subconscious. An ensemble cast that included Ken Wantaby, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Marianne Coulthard, Elliot Page, Tom Hardy, Killian Murphy, and of course, Michael Caine, because this is a Christopher Nolan film. This was really, for me, the start of the Christopher Nolan that we now know. Uh, the way that he bends time, the way that he plays with multiple narratives, Everything was building up to this in the same way that when we've talked about Wes Anderson, there was a turning point in Wes Anderson's films where he became truly Wes Anderson's. Not that everything went before it, uh, you can dismiss, but I think for me, this is where we see the Nolan of today. Multiple linear storylines, science fiction, big elements that play to an intelligent audience rather than everything being spoon-fed. And also the same problems that there are still in, in um, Christopher Nolan films, where there's lots and lots of information dumps just to get the um, get the audiences on board, but without talking down to the audience. Interestingly enough, I've seen this probably more than any other Christopher Nolan film for the fact that I have been teaching it as part of a film studies course. So I'm pretty au fait with this. And it's the Christopher Nolan film, by having seen it the most time, that every time I've seen it, I've grown to like it that little bit more because my initial cinema version of it, and I got to see it in IMAX, I thought it was good, but I, I wasn't enamored by it. But the more I've seen it, the more I like it. And there's a lot more going on than it originally, originally thought. And, and, and that makes it a winner. Mm. Andy, are we on the same page with Inception? Is this the Christopher Nolan film, the, the one that is his signature style? Absolutely. Exactly the same as you. I remember when we first saw this, I was impressed but not enamored by the film it was vision i was caught up with the visuals and the sound but i hadn't quite connected with the story or the characters but it's on the rewatches that you start to grow to like explore the themes explore the ideas and all the elements that go together in this you say about the information dumps that nolan does this is the film that i think he does the information dumps in a much more creative and fluid manner elliot page's character is just an excuse for the information dumps the new recruit into this complex world of the extractors recruited by Cobb to help with a job that he's been put to his training walkthrough is nothing more than an exposition dump for the audience but because it, he's getting trained on it being explained to it feels natural to the story rather than it just being people coming out with dialogue for no reason at all which is a problem that his latter films have seen yeah, especially I mean let's be honest especially Tenor because there just were yeah. huge moments of information dump for the audience just to keep up uh, and you are right. I think they do it in a much more organic way in Inception. But he does does that thing, which he's, he's grown into, uh, where he tells the audience just enough information to, to keep you on side and to keep you in the picture. Because, you know, he does he does have big ideas. He's a big ideas filmmaker. Yeah. And he doesn't talk down to his audience. If you don't get it, that's completely up to you. It's not for him overstating it. Well, I guess Tennant, we, we just suggested that. But even then, it was confusing. To me, this is his most, it is the most Christopher Nolan film in the fact that it's everything I like about his work and I think still to be honest my favourite is still The Prestige yeah. but there is a problem for me that runs through all of Christopher Nolan films for the, the pure visualist and you know and he tackles this film 
without with so little in the way of CGI, so much practical effects on it. His films are always a little bit cold uh, in the same mm. way that kind of Kubrick was. Uh, he's got the visuals. He's got the, the grandiose filmmaking style. He, he works on a very, very big canvas. And congratulations to that. But but they always seem to like a, an emotional core. And to some extent, Inception just about holds on to that, in, in which some of the uh, future films didn't for me. Uh, and it certainly was missing in Interstellar, even though that was supposed to be the Spielbergian emotional impact. His protagonists in his films are usually quite cold and are simply vessels to explore the wonders that he wants to present to us. I think it might be what DiCaprio brought to this role that made it a lot more of a warmer character and the personal journey of Cobb and his past life that is so integral to the film is the one bit of the human heart aspect that Nolan managed to keep in here and play out well. Something that is sadly lacking from films. Interstellar, I had no care yeah. for any of the character journey within that film because it would ju- it was just being used to go, oh, well, this character's now got to show us this wonder. Oh, now look at the black hole. Now look at the look at the pretty ships. And yeah, I get what he's doing. I get that he's a very visual director, but you do need that warmth and heart. And that's, that's present in this film and it's why it makes it the quintessential Nolan film. It, there's elements of this film that feel like it's a bond, as though Nolan was trying to lay out his story for potential hiring for that franchise, especially when you go within the layers and sub-layers and sub-layers of memory and mind, and you get down to the skiing approach to the ice, like ice base with like where they have to get to the final location. And that is pure bond. It's a Bond-esque moment, and it looks great. I would love to see what Nolan could do with an actual Bond franchise, just on the back of some elements of this film. Yeah, well, apparently his favourite Bond film, and, and you are right, it, it, it is it is a deliberate Bond reference to uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and that's apparently yeah. his favourite film. And you're right, it, it does feel like, a little bit like a, a, a calling card, and I'm sure the producers at some point have had uh, discussions with him. But he's sort of taken his bond and done that with with, with Tenet to a degree yeah. to, to play with that. I mean, at the heart of it, it's a very, very simple heist movie. You're going to talk about Army of Thieves in the review. And, you know, that is a traditionalist heist movie. Let's get the gang together. Let's plan the crime and then let's do the crime and then wait for something to go wrong. However, this is the, the, the Nolan twist. Let's do that within this this strange science fiction notion yeah. and... And then let's see how that plays out. But at the heart of it, it is it is a, a crime movie. I think the problem I had with it when it first came out, and, and this is one of the things I, I've started to love about it, is I, it just didn't feel very dreamy for me. In a way, do you remember a movie with Dennis Quaid called Dreamscape? Yes. Which is a kind of a, a, a an underrated bit of a 1980s schlocky movie, which is all, again, it's, it's very similar themes to uh, uh, to Inception. And, and they played with this idea that, you know, you, you run in slow motion, you know, the world is a dream, like it defies the laws of, of, of physics to a degree. And, and that was my initial problem with it. It felt like it was too based in a reality. I wanted to see slightly more surreal elements that happen in dreams. However, watching yeah. it subsequently, he, he's get out of jail free card for that is that when you're in a dream, it feels like it feels like reality. You don't know you're in a dream. But perhaps, yeah. and this is a, a, a very strange perhaps, I needed something at first to be slightly more surreal to it. Uh, and those elements when it was the, the classic hotel fight sequence is, is when it comes alive. The visual effects that wowed at the time still hold up beautifully today. And whilst the main effects that 
are so prevalent within this have been glimpsed in other films afterwards. Hello, Doctor Strange, I'm looking at you. That first city folding moment still has the power to absolutely astonish and wow you today. It's a great looking technique, a great effect, and just a great way to visualize on screen how exactly they manipulate everything. And this film also was one of the ones that was the first ones of Nolan that introduced the style of music score that his films will become synonymous yes. with. Working with Zimmer again, this was Zimmer brought in what, what I refer to as Zimmer farts, the big <laughs> booming burn aspect. And this was the film that utilized it beautifully, but it became a trademark for Nolan films going forwards that music would overpower dialogue on quite a lot of his films. Inception is notorious for it. And don't get me started on Tenet for not being able to follow what people are saying because the music score has gone over the top but it's now his calling card you expect it from a Nolan yes. film the music is as important to the film as the story the cast the like visuals and he's even said in interviews that the dialogue is never the important thing as far as he's concerned if you can't tell a story just with sound and vision with and you have to have explanations then you're not telling a good story which I'm going to disagree with because I don't think cinema is just about uh, about vision it is about sounds. It is about dialogue. It is about it. It's everything that makes up a movie. Is not just just one ingredient. It's it's lots of uh, ingredients. And that's to take nothing away from Inception. I, I think it's yeah. it's a terrifically good film. I think Leonardo DiCaprio is brilliant. He brings the heart to it. He yeah. in his performance, and I don't think he's been better. He's, he's been better in anything else recently. He has that tortured hero, uh, and he has an emotional reason to do the film. Nolan treats the audience as being clever, as being smart, and doesn't talk down to them, and tries to, not always successfully, as, as again, you, you can't talk about Nolan without talking about Tenor. It, it sometimes works, but he, he, he doesn't talk down to it. He brings it up to his level, and clearly that works because all of his films do very very well at the box office so there is an yeah. audience for it there are people who will go along to see pure cinema this is pure cinema it has to be seen on a big screen and that's the canvas he he, he portrays it, it's proof that that people that audiences aren't stupid they do want cinema yeah. that's that's going to engage and going to enlighten them and you can do that within a a, a big multiplex effects driven film uh, and i think you know it's it's a blockbuster but it's a thinking man's blockbuster and he uses very very simple coders that we've seen before the heist movie to do something differently and to some extent uh, the same with tenet tenet was a bond film with time travel so that's inception i think we both agreed that it is the strongest Christopher Nolan film. It's the it, it's the quintessential Christopher Nolan film. And it's the one that I, you've already said that you go back to more often than not. I've rewatched this more than anything else as well. I rewatched it for the last time. Well, it was just the back end of last year and adored it all over again. And I'm looking forward to rewatching it again. It's one of those films that I will never tire of revisiting. But we put the question out to all the lovely folk out there in Twitterverse on the feed this week. Out of the following, which is your favourite Christopher Nolan film? Now, the four options, I went for the ones that get mentioned the most. We've got The Prestige, we've got Inception, we've got Interstellar, and we've got Tenet. In top place was The Prestige, okay, which had 37.5% of the votes. Close behind it was Inception with 33.3%. Interstellar got 25% of the votes. And Tenet only scraped a paltry 4.2% of the votes. Right. That's interesting, Lena. It was close call for a while between Prestige and Inception when the votes were running. 
and they were neck and neck and occasionally each one was pipping into the lead but Prestige just about pulled it away at the last. Interesting. Um, You'll be winning another poll when we decide which of our films we're going to be talking about next week and we'll be looking at another classic movie because that's what we do in our deep dives. But <laughs> we had this, uh, this little discussion. Do we have to talk about classic movies? Do we have to talk about films that uh, we, we like? We've not always agreed on our, our film, so it's going to be interesting. Andy, should we pick uh, uh, a film that we, we both dislike and do a deep dive into it? Yeah, may, maybe one that we've disliked but never gone back to revisit mm. to give us an excuse to go back. Because I've said this from time to time, sometimes you revisit something with fresh eyes and you get something more from it. So it could be interesting to find out which films we have in common that we both had no love for Wow! and exploring those films as a deep dive. Well, you'll find out what our deep dive is next week right here on the film file so andy's had chance to catch a few films this week in a way that i haven't which is starting to be a regular thing i've had to watch lots of telly because i've been doing lots of bbc stuff and it's been all about telly andy i know you've had chance to see some uh, a mixed bag of films this week Go for it. So let's start with Last Night in Soho. Which I'm disappointed I'm not seeing, but by the time we've recorded the next show, I will have seen it. London is everything I have dreamed of. I know how much you want this, but it's not what you imagined. <laughs> I keep seeing these visions of the past. This is just a taste of things to come. You shouldn't have come here. Maybe it's too late for you. Yourself. Last night in Soho. So Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho tells us a story of an aspiring fashion designer named Eloise, played by Thomasin McKenzie, whose mother struggled with mental illness and died when Ellie was young. She's set to join the London College of Fashion. She's got an obsession with the 60s, the fashion, the glamour of the time, and she expects an escape into that vibrant world of the swinging past, only to find that life on the halls in modern days isn't as such. Renting a bedsit to get some space, she begins to dream of the 60s, and in particular, an ambitious young singer named Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who Ellie appears to inhabit the life of as she sleeps. However, it appears that the dreams are more than just fantasy and are an echo of a dark and dangerous past that threatens Ellie in the present. Edgar Wright, generally known for his snappy, witty films with kinetic energy throughout, here manages to rein in and play darker and psychological with a time-travelling ghost story murder mystery that weaves and dodges around with ease. It's a love letter to the 60s and the swinging Soho streets, but it's also a damning view of the darker edge of the notorious time and place, the two aspects balancing well alongside each other perfectly. Stylistically, the film is a dream, apt given the manner in which Ali is initially thrust back in time and indeed the first time she journeys back to follow Sandy the use of mirrors and smooth body switch cuts makes it immersively fantastical you can't help but be swept up in the moment yourself as the sounds and sights on offer capture the air as glamour with perfection the double blow casting of Thomas and Mackenzie as Eloise and Anya Taylor-Joy as Sandy is strong enough to carry the whole film the pair both bring something different, both starting ambitious but from different standpoints. And the use of mirrors in that aforementioned scene is clearly there to show that these are two kindred souls, albeit with opposing directions. But around them, the rest of the cast are equally shining. Matt Smith sparks as Jack, Sandy's manager and boyfriend. 
Diana Rigg, in her final role, plays Ellie's landlord, Miss Collins. The marvellous Terence Stamp is a mysterious silvered-haired gentleman and womanizer who takes an interest in Ellie. Everyone is cast so well and aids the woven tapestry of the story. As you would expect from Edgar Wright films, the soundtrack is composed of a variety of pop songs that Wright himself finds love for. An essential mix of 60s classics, including the marvellous Eloise by Barry Ryan, with a few choice picks from latter decades. Happy House by Susie and the Banshees, for example, is a joyous treat. It's another solid meld of hit music and visuals from Wright. Engaging, chilling, beautiful, enchanting and thrilling. Last Night in Soho is certainly going to settle comfortably in my top five of 2021. Uh, Well, I'll let you know what I think about it next week. We'll briefly touch upon that. Uh, what else do you have? Well, it landed on Netflix this week. We were we were both impressed with the original film. Uh, Lee was less impressed when he watched it a second time. The holes. It's the holes in the plot. <laughs> they, they, they really bothered me. For some reason, I missed them the first time. But now I know they're there. The whole film just falls apart. It's just pure spectacle. But the prequel to Army of the Dead is taking a look at Ludwig Dieter, the safecracker, and is a very different kind of film. Ludwig Dieter. We've been watching you, and we want to recruit you. You're familiar with the outbreak in America. They don't want to turn people into flesh eating monsters. Yes, I heard something about it. The world's distracted. This window of opportunity isn't just our only chance, it's yours. My only chance for what? A life less ordinary. Guns, we have guns. This is about becoming legends. Any questions? No. Yes, many. Hundreds. So the prequel to Army of the Dead takes a look at the character of Ludwig Dieter, the safecracker, and how he became the best safecracker in the world. Directed by and starring Matthias Freikhofer, the film shows us how bank teller Sebastian Schlenkt Vonert, played by Matthias himself, with a zero-subscriber YouTube channel all about the history of safes and lock mechanisms, finds himself recruited by a gang of international jewel thieves to pull off the ultimate heist three legendary safes to be broken into within a week before they're relocated. This is set in the same world as the Army of the Dead film was, and there's nods to the overall setting via news reports in the background on TV sets showing an early zombie outbreak in Las Vegas. But aside from that, there's very little in common between the two films. Whereas that film was a frenetic action horror romp through the eyes of Zack Snyder, this film is a riff on the tropes of heist movies and plays out as such. Whilst the safe cracking itself is pretty underwhelming and somewhat mundane, after all, it just resorts to the same tumbling locks each time, it's the setup, the distraction, and the plan for the jobs themselves that engages, and even jokingly mocks the Hollywood tropes at the same time. What really lifts this film, however, is how utterly charming Matthias is in the role, and how the character of Sebastian slash Dieter is fleshed out as a result. A minor character in a group in the previous film, he's now given a wealth of a backstory, and he's risen to be one that I'd love to see return for the sequel to Army. He's awkward and timid at the start, but grows over the film in confidence, aided by the presence of Natalie Emmanuel's Gwendolyn Starr, 
the jewel thief who recruits him. Emmanuel has come a long way since her Hollyoaks days via Game of Thrones and the Fast and Furious saga, and here she fires on all cylinders. The rest of the cast of characters round off the archetypes of the genre well enough, even if they don't really add much to it. This, in the end, is Dieter's story, and the only person important to him is Gwendolyn, the one who showed him who he could be. It's well-directed, snappily paced, never bogged down by the larger world setting around it, Army of Thieves is a solid companion piece to Army of the Dead and indeed, in my opinion, is a better film by far than the film that spawned it. I, I, I am going to be in for this. I, I have been looking forward to seeing it. I would have watched it this weekend, but uh, I was away gigging. So I, I'm way up for it. I, I like the Dieter character. Um, I like the fact that from what you've described, this is more of a heist movie because I am a sucker for a heist movie every time. I'm not so looking forward to your next film, though, which I have. I've had zero interest. And and it's because Nick Cage now turns out a film a week, all to the uh, all to the detriment of, of quality. Now, something like Pig comes along, which is uh, which is interesting. But the majority of his films are let's hire wild eyed uh, Nicolas Cage. And, and let's just let him run wild. And I've heard rumours that when he gets onto set, he basically directs himself. I'm kind of getting bored with the shtick. I'd rather he, you know, he, he takes his time, uh, hangs on and does a, a, a quality product, especially when I, I watched um, National Treasure a few weeks ago. Uh, and, and that was a family film. And, you know, it was still full on Nick Cage. Well, no, it was half up. It was half crazy Nick Cage. But he yeah. made he was an enjoyable leading man. Now I just think he's a caricature of a caricature. And unless in the film you're going to talk about he's anything more than that, then I don't think I'll be in. Well, the film we're going to talk about is Willy's Wonderland. Welcome to Willy's Wonderland. Spend the night cleaning Willy's Wonderland, and I will pay to have your car fixed. Deal? You are officially on staff. Let's get the hell out of here. I can't stand to hear a grown man scream. This place has a dark history. I know the bullshit story they told you. It's a lie. You're here to be a human sacrifice. Have you been listening to a word I've been saying? He's gonna die in here, but he won't listen to me. So a quiet drifter played by Nick Cage gets a flat tyre on a remote country road and finding himself unable to pay for the repairs as they'll only take cash in the small town, he agrees to do a night's work cleaning up the abandoned Willy's Wonderland Entertainment Centre whilst the repairs to his vehicle are done. However, he soon finds out that the centre is home to possessed animatronic mascots that are out for blood. This is utter nonsense, of course. And whilst the creator of it claims it was nothing to do with Five Nights at Freddy's, the fact that his short film came out a year after the first game hit suggests otherwise. It's billed as a comedy horror, it struggles on both aspects, and it fails to really deliver on either end of that spectrum. Cage plays as eccentric as ever, only this time silently, and the rest of the cast are as B-movie as you can get. As a gang of youths try to help Cage's character and find themselves stalked by the mascots, they're all so blandly stereotypical that you don't care if they live or die. Look, I get it. If you enjoy Cage's low-rent nonsense, then this is right up your alley. Or if you fancy a brainless bit of chum while chugging some beers with buddies, then by all means, go for it. 
But this shtick itself was done so much better with the Banana Splits movie in 2019. And overall, it just feels a little flat to me. Yeah, Andy, um, I don't think I'm going to be in for this one. As I said, I, I'm, I'm overstuffed with Cage. I want Cage to do something that's got some some meaning again. And I, and I think the closest thing he did with, to that was Pig. Yeah. And the final film is The Night House. I've been looking forward to this. This has been circling for some time. I, I, I do like Rebecca Hall an awful lot. I think she's a, she's a great screen presence. Uh, so I have been looking forward to this. I didn't know, to be honest, that it landed. My husband's dead. Did he leave a note? He did. You were right. Nothing is after you. You're safe now. What does that mean? You were right. Nothing is after you. You're safe now. You were right. Nothing is after you. You said you were safe. Safe from what? Rebecca Hall plays Beth, a woman who has just lost her husband, Owen, to suicide in the night house. Owen's ominous suicide notes declared that you were right, there is nothing, nothing is after you. It weighs on Beth's mind. And when she finds reversed floor plans for their home within his belongings and starts to suffer strange supernatural events at night, either her sanity is in doubt or there's something dark and twisted plaguing her. The film is packed with atmosphere, tension, and smart use of shadow and background object placement to play with your mind as the mystery unravels. The story seems vaguely familiar, but plays some fresh beats in a satisfactory manner. It does occasionally veer into the loud noises jump scare territory, but thankfully this doesn't offer the only chills. The atmosphere and unnatural foreboding has already played enough on your mind by that point. There are flaws, and at times it does feel like it's meandering a little, but the presence of Hall in the lead role swiftly draws you back in as she gives a powerful, emotional portrayal of someone struggling to keep focused through grief. This is a solid entry into the psychological horror genre and well worth checking out, especially now that it's landed for home consumption on Disney+. Plus. So I'll probably give that one a watch. As I said, I've heard about it. I found it an interesting tease as to what I, what I knew about it. So uh, yeah, count me in. So Andy, what's happening in the world of cinema and streaming over the next week? So at cinemas, we've got Eternals, the latest MCU film, which is very much very different to your normal MCU film, if the reviews are to be believed. We'll be talking about this next week. Also this week at cinemas, Red Notice gets a limited cinema run before it lands on Netflix. And Spencer is released for those people who don't want action, adventure and spectacle and want something a bit more exploratory about a character drama. Over on Now TV and Sky, if you didn't get to watch it yourself earlier this year, Mortal Kombat arrives. And on Netflix, The Harder They Fall, it's had its limited cinema run over the past couple of weeks. Now this Black Western appears for everyone to be able to stream. I'm really looking forward to this because I, I do love a good take on the Western genre. I'm, I'm always open for a good Western. It does look very good and it's very well cast as well. So it's on my radar and we will talk about this one next week. And on Amazon, The Electrical Life of Louis One, which sees Benedict Cumberbatch playing Louis One, an eccentric British artist who helped change the view of cats forever through his psychedelic pictures. I'm just leaving a gap there. <laughs> pregnant pause strangely enough I, I wasn't won over by that one <laughs> but um Tish it's Benedict Cumberbatch I'll, I'll, I'll watch him I'll watch him plant letters to be honest with you <laughs> it is Cumberbatch oh moving <laughs> swiftly on you can't have to have we reached our pun quota for this episode I think we may have sir I think we may have 
Okay, and that's about it for this week. We'll be reviewing Eternals next week. And before we go, and we do this every week, we tell you about our neat things. Things that we've watched, seen, read, heard, you name it. We've enjoyed it. It's a neat thing. And traditionally, and I'm not going to break with tradition because, well, that's wrong. Tell me, Andy, <laughs> what's your neat thing for this week? So my neat thing today is IMDB TV. I've heard about this. It's completely free. And it's been out in America for a while, but it's now rolled out to the UK and it's available on Amazon Prime and all Amazon devices and some consoles as well will enable you to get the IMDb TV app. It's ad-supported streamer of old shows and some new content. The ad breaks are much shorter than standard TV, usually around about an, a minute in total, and don't feel too in intrusive. There's new originals, which include a revival of Leverage. New shows such as Alex Ryder, Time Wasters and Corner Gas. But it's the archive of old shows that drew me in. There's a wealth of movies in there, as well as shows such as The A-Team, Magnum P.I., Law and Order, Comic Book Men, and the one that captured my attention, Babylon 5. Yes, all five seasons plus the movies I'm in. are on IMDb TV. I'm in. And un unlike the home release versions, which cropped the frame on the effects shots due to the problems caused when the show was made, it was filmed for widescreen, but the effects were planned for 4.3 only, meaning that it looks a bit blurry. This is the HD remastered versions that retain the broadcast 4.3 but look so much sharper than they were back then after being processed through better. Take a dip into IMDb TV and see what treasures you can find, but I definitely recommend checking out Babylon 5 on there. Yeah, I'm in. Count, count it in. I've been looking forward to seeing Babylon 5 since we talked mm. about the fact that it is uh, it is coming back. Uh, my neat thing, uh, season two landed this week, and that's Lock and Key. Andy, did you watch the first season? I watched the first season, yes, and I absolutely loved it. Okay, so this is based on a comic book series by Joe Hill, the son of Stephen King, and Gabrielle Rodriguez. Uh, it's on Netflix. The story is Randall Locke is murdered at the hands of a former student. His wife and children move to the family uh, residence, Key House. The children soon discover a number of mysterious keys throughout the house that can be used to unlock various doors in mystical ways. They soon become aware, though, of a demonic entity that is also searching for the keys. Now, it's one of those shows, and I, I was talking about this earlier uh, on, on radio, that you can watch as uh, as a family to a degree. It's all the right elements of mystery and horror, but never overtly scary. It diverges quite a bit from from the comic book, but stays true to the essence of it. Uh, the comic book series was was fantastic. At first, I was a little bit disappointed, and then realised that they they couldn't do it verbatim. That they had to take that change on it, but it keeps the heart of what it is, and it keeps the heart of what the keys are about. It's a thoroughly inventive show based on a thoroughly inventive comic. And it's great to see that some adaptations can move on from the source material and add something extra to it. In some ways, it reminds me of the old ITV and BBC ghost stories you used to get as a kid, you know, with a group of children in a, in a mysterious house. And, and that was my in for it. So if you've not had chance to see season one, and you're interested in season two, go back, get onto Netflix, watch Lock and Key from, from series one, jump into season two, and you will not be disappointed. And it's well worth you checking out the comics as well, because the comics are a great, great read. And I think at the moment they're on offer on Comixology, so, so give them a blast. And we are done for this week. We'll be back next week with another film file, as ever, on the same film file channel, same film file time. 
Andy, any big plans for the week? <laughs> Looking at all the films that are landing on streaming in cinema this week, <laughs> I'm just going to be plugged in constantly, aren't I? <laughs> I think you are. I think you're just going to have to do that Johnny Monomic thing and just have them keyed <laughs> right into your brain. Um, yeah, for me, I think just rest. It's been a crazy few days. I was filming last week. I'm absolutely shattered, but I will be seeing you for Eternals. We'll see you again next week, but before you go, if you're going to perform Inception, you need imagination. Thank <laughs> you.